You're listening to Inspired Edinburgh, a weekly interview show that brings you raw and powerful conversations with fascinating people from all walks of life. Our mission is to inspire and encourage you to reflect on your identity, beliefs, purpose and worldview. If you enjoy this, please subscribe for future episodes and feel free to contact us via any of our social media channels. Thank you in advance for taking the time to listen to the show and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh, the home of powerful conversations. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Joe Caulfield. Joe is a multi-award winning stand-up comedian, comedy writer, host, actress and crime fighter. Best known for your legendary one-woman shows, you are one of the finest female comics at work and have worked on some of the biggest shows and with some of the biggest names in British comedy. You've been a regular guest on Mock the Week and Have I Got News For You and have appeared on the likes of Saturday Night Live, The Comedy Store and The Stand-Up Show, as well as The John Bishop's Show, Never Mind The Buzzcocks and Michael McIntyre's Comedy Roadshow. You've also appeared on numerous list-type shows such as TV's Greatest Moments, So Last Week and 100 Greatest Christmas Moments. On radio, you've had your own acclaimed shows. It's that Joe Caulfield again, Joe Caulfield Won't Shut Up and Joe Caulfield Speak Easy. And as a comedy writer, you've written for Ruby Wax, Joan Rivers, Anne Robinson, Denise Van Outen, Anton Deck and Graham Norton, who said of you, I never knew I could like a woman so much. You've hosted countless corporate events and award ceremonies, are in demand at all major UK comedy clubs and have completed multiple nationwide theatre tours and have performed internationally in cities around the globe. Joe, it's absolutely amazing to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. (laughs) It's a pleasure to have you here. I found a bit tired. I was like, oh God, I've done a lot more than I thought. You've done a huge amount, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll sort of come to... Uh, how that stuff, hearing mm-hmm. it back, kind of makes you feel, um, because I think that's always interesting. But we'll, we'll start off with a slightly easier topic, mm-hmm. which is, I suppose, your background. Um, looking at your bios, I know that you were born in Wales to Irish parents, but you were brought up in the East Midlands. So so what was really the sort of growing up experience like for you? Well, I grew up, um, as I say, my parents were from Northern Ireland, so my brother and sister were both born there. And then okay. my dad joined the Air Force. They came here. Mm-hmm. Um, they were Catholics, so they kind of left um, just as the troubles were brewing. Okay. And um, it was odd for a Catholic to join the Royal Air Force. Um, so then that happened to be the first posting was Wales, and so I just happened to be born there. Um, but it was always, I always grew up feeling like I was slightly Welsh. Okay. <laughs> because everybody else was born in Ireland, so that seemed weird that I wasn't. But then we didn't really live in Wales long but in like in a World Cup, I'll support Wales, Northern Ireland, Ireland, Scotland because I live here, and then England. <laughs> That's just weirdly the way it feels. I don't feel it. You know, they're the I feel I don't feel it for England, but I feel it for the others. So then it was then it was, and this is one of those things people go, oh, that's probably why you're a comedian, but I don't know at all. Who knows? Moving around, you get posted every two years. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it was Wiltshire, Norfolk a lot. There's a lot of the East Coast. And then we kind of moved into East Midlands. And that was that was when my dad came out when I was a teenager. He came out of the Air Force. Okay. Um, so we went from a very regimented sort of a life where 
everyone, weirdly, sort of slightly communist, I always think, because everybody had the same houses. Yeah. You lived on bases then. This was before people realised, well, my parents were late to realise, oh, you should buy property. Mm. They didn't. So we always lived on RAF camps. Everyone had the same house, same furniture. You moved to another house. The house might be a bit different, but it was the same furniture that was supplied by the RAF. Everything was magnolia. You were never allowed colour anywhere. Um, and it weirdly, I think, made you not very materialistic, which is good because mm-hmm. everybody's houses were sort of the same. Um, everybody was unsatisfied with their furniture. That was fine. Um, and it was very safe because the camps were in the middle of nowhere always. Uh, so there'd be secret air force bases, I suppose. And then, uh, so it meant that you could really explore. Like I remember going, but I think it was a different time as well. Going off my bike, you could go away for hours and just be out in the countryside or on the camp and, uh, you'd be safe and you could, your parents were very separate from you, (laughs) weirdly Mm. then as you know, and then, uh, then we went to London, went to Hendon. Uh, which makes me feel old because where I used to live is now a museum. It's now the REF Museum. Okay. <laughs> um, and so, and then went to boarding school because that's the REF paid for you to go. Mm-hmm. So that was weird. That was nuns. Um, and that, I think that's a weird thing. I went quite young. I went at eight, which I think is, uh, I think that's a hole in you forever, mm. <laughs> really. You know, it's a very odd thing to do to children, I think. And, uh, and weirdly, when I've met people who from school, you know, women that I was at school with, even years later when we meet, we're so bonded about how awful it was and how weird it was and how odd nuns are. And I used to hate nuns with a passion. And it's only when I got older, I suddenly realized, oh, they were just women with no choices. They were nearly all from Ireland. And often, I bet, their only choice was get married to this man up the road who you don't want to marry mm-hmm. uh, or um, become a nun, you know. So they'd go, Jeez. at least being a nun was freedom because they got to leave, you know. Or often the only choice was looking after some elderly relative or something. Yeah. So I kind of changed my mind about them then. Okay. You know? And then there was a lot of drifting. So went to school, um, liked school perfectly well. My dad coming out of the Air Force changed everything. He then didn't have a job, couldn't afford school fees, so then went to the comprehensive, um, which in retrospect I think was probably good for me because I think I would have been really weird if I'd gone to boarding school from the age of 8 to 18. But I didn't. I left at 14, went to the comprehensive, thought, oh, this is all a bit weird. Oh, uh Boys, alcohol, music, suddenly it was like a new world. And then I was, I think, a troublesome teenager. So, but then my dad was going through his own troubles as well. So I think we were all, and my mum was having a menopause. My brother and sister had left home by then. So I think it was a time we were all just, all having our own troubles. So, and I just left. I just left home at 17. And I think my parents were having their own problems. So we're like, oh, maybe she's better off out of it. (laughs) And, uh. My sister was living in London, so I came down to London, stayed with her till I got a job, and I got a job um, as a breakfast waitress in a hotel uh, in Kensington because they gave you accommodation. And then I realised, oh, breakfast waitress, you have to get up at five. So then I uh, got a job doing it waitressing, but in the evening, 
But then I also really got into rockabilly. And that, for about five years, was my life. Mm. I was in a rockabilly band. Um, then my boyfriend, he was a rockabilly. All my friends were into it. And that was all we did was go out to things. And then I started, I met this girl. She said, well, she said, oh, I like your shoes. Do you want to be in a band? And I couldn't play any instruments. And she said, this is so non-feminist. She said, oh, my boyfriend will teach you. And he basically, he was a really good guitarist, Jim. And so he taught me to play drums. I did the mm-hmm. snare drum. She double bass. And there was a girl on sax. And I sang a bit, although I'm not a very good singer. And then I had other people bands and we would do, we would do busking as well and get some money from that. And then we started, me and her, Madeline started selling vintage clothes. So I did that. And that was um, a sort of recurring theme of wanting to be my own boss, wanting to make my own money. And I'd done it since I was a kid. Like my mum said, I used to make horrific perfume out of mashed up flowers <laughs> and sell it to her friends who you know, clearly were humouring me going, oh, give her tuppence for it. But I'd go, oh, good, I'm earning money. I'm making money from my terrible perfume <laughs> that I make people wear. Um, yeah, so I, I sort of did that. And it was a very, this was the 80s in London. So it was a very, London was very different. It was a very cheap place to live. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived in the, what were called legal squats in Kilburn Park. And they were a row of uh, Victorian terraced houses and you had electricity and water, you're plumbed in and you paid for those. You just didn't pay any rent. And you were allowed to stay there until they said, we're going to knock it down or we're going to redevelop it or something. Mm-hmm. So I stayed in one of those where quite a lot of them were very alternative hippie style. They were all, because I remember they, one of them worked in Neil's yard. And I'd never heard of this place where they made whole wheat bread. And I remember and they had brown sugar which I've never really known people to have brown sugar. <laughs> and uh, two of the women were from South Africa and they were black. And I remember getting into a whole thing about, well, maybe they have brown sugar because they're black. Because I didn't, hadn't really met many black people before <laughs> in the RAF, you know. <laughs> so everyone, and there was people, people were jugglers. There was a guy who was a mime artist. And it was, my sister was also involved in theatre. So it was a, kind of a time when everyone was slightly into something arty mm-hmm. or doing it yourself thing. It's sort of, this was 80s, but, but it was sort of post-punk where people were still going, hey, we can do something. We don't have to go into these straight jobs. Mm-hmm. And it never occurred to me to have a proper, like I had jobs, I always worked, but I never thought about, oh, I'm an adult and this should lead to or when will I buy a house or get married or, you know, any of the... Th- I. And so was that sort of a cultural thing, do you think? Do you think you were kind of shaped by the, you know, the external environment, as it were? Yeah, I don't... I just was very much just drifting. Yeah. And I, I look back and I go, my God, I had a clue what I was doing. <laughs> and weirdly... And I went through that phase. And then when I was 25, I was a bit... I was getting bored with the rockabilly a bit and... People have started to go off and do slightly different things. And i that's when I started again waitressing at 25. And I remember starting working in this restaurant in Charing Cross Road. And I made friends with people who I'm still friends with because it was such a high-pressure restaurant. Um, like people would cry because you were so busy. Um, and you were responsible for the money, which I don't think it would happen now. So you had tables and if, and people would do runners. 
you know, and if people, that's why I would never do it. Never do a runner, ever, because I would have to pay because you were a sponsor. Oh, yeah. You had to give the money at the end of the night and go, well, I served all these people and here's the money. Um, and my mate said to me, he goes, you were always hilarious because you never made money because I just picked you every night cashing up and going, oh, no, <laughs> what have I done wrong? <laughs> and, uh, and it was only then, I was there maybe three years and then everyone sort of started going off to college and things. And that's when I realised... Oh, they're like five years younger than me. They're all now starting to do proper jobs and careers and that. And that's when I thought, oh, I suppose, I don't know, I should do something. And I went to drama school for a year. Okay. And that's when uh, I did a postgraduate. It was only a year's course. Uh, a terrible drama school that has a terrible reputation, East 15. Um, the only famous people who are from it are the guy who is great, was great, the guy from Steptone's son, Harold Corbett, is that his okay. name? I always muddle him up with the one from, it's not the Sooty and Sweet Man, that's Harry okay. H. Corbett, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Alison Steadman went there, Ruby Wax went there, Damon Alban went there. Really? But it was one of those ones where it was, uh, they were very into method acting, so mm-hmm. they, they had that whole thing where they would break people down. It's all about that. We'd break you down and then we'd build you up. Okay. <laughs> but postgraduate course, everyone was a bit older. So I think they, they knew they couldn't really do that to you because you would go, what's this? But the younger mm-hmm. people, oh, my God, they used to be terrible. They would take them out to this place in Yorkshire and they would have to go and play Nazis and Jews. And, but you had to stay in character and persecute each other until people Jesus. were crying, basically, seemed to be the success of it. <laughs> like, oh God. So I did that for a year, but it was during that that one of the exercises was to do stand-up comedy. And we went to a club that's still going in London, Comedy Cafe, still friends with the owner, Noel Faulkner. And we watched people, and there was something about it. And then a friend went, I'm going to go to the comedy store and watch it there. And I went, and I remember the bill. Mark Lamar was a compare, and I sort of knew him from the rockabilly scene because mm-hmm. he was a rockabilly. And I was like, oh, my, I don't know he did this. Because someone said to me, oh, they've seen him on telly. And I went, what, Mark? <laughs> and they went, yeah. And I was like, oh, I don't think so. And then so to see him being as he is, like as I knew him, it was the same person on stage. That's what I really liked. I was like, oh, my God, he's just being Mark. <laughs> and then Jack D was on. I just, again, I was like, oh, he's just moaning about stuff. <laughs> I could do that. And I think that's what, the, to me, and Sean Mio, who's a good friend of mine now, Sean Mio, who's great gags. See him, I thought, well, oh, that looks harder, what he's doing. And then Mike Haley, who did impressions. And I thought, well, that's hard. I can't do that. <laughs> but weirdly, Jack D and Mark Lamar thought, oh, I could do that. Um, and I didn't know anything about stand-up. So I didn't know that what they're doing is difficult, but it was the fact that it looked doable. This is just people talking like real people. It's not like old blokes with frilly shirts telling jokes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this seems <laughs> like I could do it. And that's when I started to sort of take it seriously. The exercise was we had to come up five minutes to stand up and people just kind of got up and did it. And I kept putting it off because they'd do two a week and I'm going I'm to work on it. And I worked on mine. And then when I did it in front of the class, I knew it was good. 
<laughs> because I'd worked on it, because I'd thought about what funny stories do I have. That was how I started. Go, what funny stories have I told my friends? Mm-hmm. And let's try and do those, but make them funnier. Um, which isn't a bad way to approach stand-up Absolutely. if you don't know how to write jokes. Yeah. Um, and it just, <laughs> I just sort of lit something that I thought, I'm going to finish the drama course, and then I might go and do this stand-up comedy thing. Because I don't, you don't seem to have to pass any exams or anything like that. You just phone up a bloke and say, can I have an open spot? And they give you an open spot. And that was it? Yeah. <laughs> and so you started presumably just practicing and doing that. Yeah. And then eventually you decided to do your own, your own thing. You bought some equipment. Yeah, thought, and then you you um, did it in like a basement club. Is yes, that right? in um, yeah. So I was had been getting a few gigs. <laughs> I didn't realize how much you needed to do it at first. Okay, um, I was I would be sick with nerves, and I would do it about every three weeks, which isn't enough because all you do is spend three weeks feeling sick with nerves for the next time you do it. Um, <laughs> but there was something about it that I just loved and thought was the thing. Uh, and so I, I had a little speaker from when I'd been in a band, I think from when we were busking or something. Um, so opened a comedy club to, so that I could compare it basically. Right. Okay. Um, because I would book myself back because I would go, well, that Joe Corfish wasn't that funny this week, but I think I'll book her back. (laughs) And I learned an awful lot, not just about performing, but about how it works, running a club. So that, uh, to how you approach clubs, not to be annoying, you know, and how things work and what makes a good comedy room and, and then just watching lots of stand-ups and then meeting stand-ups because I'd be booking them and seeing how that worked. Um, and I, I, yeah, ran it for ages until I started to get booked, I suppose, and then was booking other people to compare it, like Graham Norton used to compare it. And he really? was a great compare because okay. um, he would just be, you know, himself chatting and all of that, you know. Because yeah. he had not done act- stand up that much, he had done he had gone straight into doing one person shows at Edinburgh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then started doing bits of comparing, which he was a natural at. Yeah. Okay, and so well, how did you transition from doing that sort of work to then going into the more mainstream television type stuff? Because it seems, you know, from a an, an uh, onlooker's perspective, mm. it seems like quite different things you know <laughs> oh i don't think of it at all really because i don't think of it as mainstream or okay. not mainstream got you it was all the, it's all the same kind of stand-up to me the stand-up i was doing then i think what i'm doing now is the same just better hopefully yeah but uh it's not more mainstream in any way okay i was never weird or trying to be weird i was just trying to be funny I, right you know and learning what it was it took me a long time to learn what it was I think now people start, they're much more fully formed because they see so much of it on TV. Yeah. So they've, they, and they've got lots of people who are their age group or like them that they can go, oh, that's the person. And people copy somebody for a while and then you sort of found yourself. But I, I sort of didn't know who, who was like me except for this thing of I want, wanted it to feel like me talking. But it had to be funny. Because you just talking isn't funny enough. So it was learning how to write jokes. I got books, you know, how to write joke books and kind of studied it. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
which somebody else had suggested, which I thought was a bit weird. And then I thought, oh, but I remember my mate having a how to play the guitar book. So obviously that seems to be the way to do it. Mm-hmm. And I remember, weirdly, I have a very good memory for routines. And long before I even thought about doing comedy, I remember, I could remember routines. Like I remember the first time I saw a video with Steve Martin. And again, I thought, oh, he's just being an idiot. This is doable. You know, that's why I related to it. He's just running around with an arrow in his head. Hilarious. And I saw, and at the time, the videos that seemed to be around were him, Richard Pryor, um, again, which seemed very relatable, uh, even though I'm not black and my mother wasn't a prostitute <laughs> and I'm not a crack addict or anything, but weirdly seemed relatable because the only person that always relatable was, was Billy Connolly, but he already seemed a bit old then. Um, and I la- and, uh, who else did I like? Oh, and then I saw there was a program on TV of comics. Jasper Carrot filmed it in America and I remember. Jerry Seinfeld was on it. This was before he was famous. He was just a comic. And it was filmed, it must have been somewhere like Catch a Rising Star or somewhere like that, because it was the brick wall thing, which we didn't have. The American was way ahead of us. And this, so Jerry Seinfeld was on. This other guy who's now died, um, who would talk about being a supply teacher in rough schools in New York, who was hilarious. And I remember Jerry Seinfeld did a routine about women having areas where they put their perfume which I thought was so clever he was going here I get but why here now why do they have it here so they're going to go and then you're going to go oh well behind the knee oh <laughs> and uh and women putting their hair in rollers electric rollers and he mm-hmm. went and he was and he would talk about doing it as baked potatoes I remember and then at Ellen DeGeneres and she had a really good routine about when you you eat something that's really horrible and you always go to somebody, oh, this is awful, taste it. And I thought, oh, that's really funny because that is exactly what people do. And there was another woman on, Paula Poundstone, who's still around, who was very, I thought was, she was one I thought was really funny because she didn't seem to be trying to, Alan DeGeneres was quite perky and she was sort of blonde and quite attractive looking and perky, uh, but I liked, um, Paula Poundstone seemed so like, didn't care whether people liked it or not. Like quite badly dressed, but I found her sort of adorable. Quite, I found her very funny, and I remember, and also because she talked about being a waitress, so that's probably what I liked. And she <laughs> talked about working in an IHOP, House of Pancakes, and and, and she just said, "Yeah, live your dreams." And I thought that's hilarious. And then she said, um, "And if people were mean to me, I would touch their eggs." And I thought that's so funny because it's mean. <laughs> and that was the other thing when I saw Joan Rivers. Rivers, I thought, oh, I love the fact that she's being mean. Mm-hmm. And I and I worked out, oh, it looks like she's being deli- absolutely mean to you, but that's just a line she uses. And I saw what she did of there's types of people and you can have a line and say it to them. Mm-hmm. and But you can say it to somebody else another night who's a similar type. You know, you can build up these lines that look like you're improvising, but you're not. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, but it's weird that I have a, and that was long before a comedy, but I have a really good memory of routines. And as mm. saying Dave Allen as a kid, I loved, um, which I think is odd for a small girl to like, you know. But there was just the, the, just the sitting. I think it reminded me of uncles in Northern Ireland. We would go over there every summer. We'd just sit and, you know, be funny. And they were always slightly caustic. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Yeah. Hmm. It's interesting having done research. Mm. I mean, there's words that are used to describe your style of comedy. Mm. Um, and I don't know if it's necessarily a reflection of how you are as a person, Joe, but acerbic or yeah. angry. I mean, how would you best describe your style of comedy? I think angry, but I think of it as a celebration of anger. Like I enjoy <laughs> being angry um, because uh, it, gets th- it gets things off your chest, you know. And it makes, you know, don't, you don't bottle things up, but there's nothing. And I'll do it for a laugh. Like I do it to my husband. I'll go, I fucking hate them. And he goes, oh, you're fucking angry. I go, I'm fucking really angry. And it makes me laugh. Because I don't know, it's childish to be that angry. But it's, uh, and I, and often, it's weird. I think audiences often tell you what you are. You, I yeah. know when I'm mean, audiences love it. If I stamp my feet and go, I told them to fuck off. You know, I'm not having it. And people are like, yeah, you know, oh, yeah, good for you, Joe. You know, um, whether I did or not, you know, at the time in reality. Um, so I think, yeah, angry, uh, because there's a lot to be angry about. Not the big stuff. The big stuff I'm too angry about. You know, actual politics, actual terrible things that happen in life. Mm-hmm. I can't do on stage because I'm just genuinely angry and it's not funny. I did try and went, oh, it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me. People would look at me and then go, we'd really rather go back to the other thing where you were just annoyed about customer service, you know, (laughs) rather than global politics. Yeah. Um, And I love relationships. I like talking about relationships with friends. I love feeling out relationships in the crowd. And you get very good at just sort of judging people and making very rash assumptions about people you don't know. Um, but you, but I think it's always that people know you're being funny. Like as long as you look people in the eye, because I've seen comics do it and I go, no wonder they took offence because you're not looking them in the eye. You have to look them in the eye and go, clearly this is a joke. And it's almost like I'm giving you a chance to say something back. Mm-hmm. So they know they could if they wanted to, but they don't want to because they know, they know it's a joke. You're not really being mean, no matter how, what. And I will say, you know, cutting things about pe- what th- people are wearing or what type of people I think they are or makes me laugh enormously at the moment that if I have Australians in, I go, oh, I've never been to Australia because I'm not interested. And it's just so <laughs> rude. <laughs> and um, people really laugh because they're so not expecting it because everybody yeah. likes Australia. And I thought, but I genuinely don't really. <laughs> um, I think racism, Nick Cave, you know, that's all I think about it. So, but things like that make me laugh where they're just outrageously rude and mean. Um, but I think mean to the right people. Um, so it's picking the right targets uh, or being so mean to people who don't deserve it that it's quite clearly you're just joking. Okay. Yeah. You know? So I don't mind if people say I'm mean or angry. It was one year when people kept saying bitchy. That annoyed me because I thought that was only because I'm female. I thought if I was a man, Mm. they would have said I was cutting or acerbic or caustic. Mm -hmm. But I think because if I was a woman or they would say about a gay man, I was bitchy. And and I did a little bit about it in one show um, where I read these reviews that all said bitchy, this, bitchy. And then I went on and made up ones like Financial Times, Dow Jones is this, Joe Caulfield is bitchy. And just and then went on to make it more and more extreme um, just because it was silly mm-hmm. that they had done that. I thought it was thoughtless. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, you've, you've performed an enormous amount. You've obviously written an enormous amount for other people. So where do you find the, the kind of inspiration for the content? Um, I mean, I don't write for other people now. Okay. I just write for myself. I wrote mostly for Graham and then I had some uh, more one-off jobs writing for other people. But I wrote for Graham for about seven years. Mm-hmm. And it was an amazing job to have. One, because I earned money. I was well paid. And that bought me time to then, I think, I didn't have to immediately go into, I don't want to slag off what was the jongler circuit, but in a way, some comics developed this act that was hard and tough and really worked at jonglers. And then when jonglers kind of collapsed, they didn't have anywhere else to go with that act because it was too limited. Mm-hmm. So I think it helped me be able to develop more as a comic and be able to afford to go to Edinburgh, do the festival, mm-hmm. which then led to me getting the radio show. So it, it helped me a lot, but it also helped me to learn how to write jokes because the other person I work with, Rob Colley, who still writes with Graham, he's just a joke machine. <laughs> he's one of those people, put him in a room, he'll come out two hours later, page of jokes that will get laughs. You know, wow. whereas I've always been a more ingredients, like I put this and then if I put that together and then oh, what is it? And I'll have to say it and then I'll know. So I learned a lot from him about speeding up that process of how to put jokes together. Um, and also it helps because you've got Graham's intonation in your head. Very quick, very easy to know how Graham would say things mm-hmm. and, his, and his little ticks of like, well, in fairness, he's got his own rhythm. Um <laughs> So you would know, and you knew what he was interested in as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there would be sort of the whole day would be honing the jokes, and you would bring them to Graham, and he would go, no, 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 no. But actually, he would never read them. The producer would read them in Graham's voice. Everybody always read everything to Graham in his voice, <laughs> and Graham would go. Mm-hmm. So he wouldn't say them till the rehearsal, which I think is what he liked. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we would just sort of, and he would go, I like that, but can it be funnier? Um, and then. He was also very good at learning because some days there wasn't enough news and he would he would be very good at going, well, if that's all the jokes there are, that's all the jokes there are. And he would always say, I can't write any better, so what can I do? I'll just I'll just sell it. And so he would. He'd do a funny face and then we'd go, oh, well done, Graham. It was a slow news day, but he <laughs> made the jokes work. And also through him, that's we went to New York for three months. Mm-hmm. And so I got to live there do comedy there, met New York comedians who I'm still friends with. And that was very good to see their scene where nobody's making money, completely different to our scene, uh, like in New York and LA, LA, they just do sort of seven minutes and everybody's trying to get jobs, either writing jobs um, or acting jobs because they had this thing where they they didn't really approve of going on the road because if you go on the road in America, unless you're the headliner, then you make money. But if you don't, if you're not the headliner, you're really just covering your costs. And there's a few people as a younger comic, well, she's not so young now, well, she's still young. Nikki Glaser, uh, she went on the road and she's now quite big. And I think, well, that was good that she did that of going on the road because otherwise you can be New York a very New York, what I call small room comedian. So you, the audience is all the same people as you. 
And they're only often come to see comedy because they're thinking about doing comedy and it all becomes very, very insular. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, uh, and sometimes it all, but the good side of that is sometimes they, because they're not being paid, <laughs> they do what they like. Yeah. So they can sometimes develop in a way where you go, oh, that's really interesting. I like like Eugene Merman as an example of one of those people who came out of that scene. Really, really inventive. Um, Janine Garofalo, an inventive, a different voice. Um, but then there was other people where I was just like, well, this really isn't anything. And I feel I now know why people heckle. Because I'm feeling like I'd like to tell you to get off stage. No. <laughs> and so, I mean, how did you manage to get the the sort of the bigger TV gigs, like it, your kind of mock the weeks, Michael McIntyre? Show, it's all very, very slow, de- developing. Somebody seeing you. Um, so, mock the week. I can't remember. Michael McIntyre was just because I'd been on the circuit, you mm-hmm. know, it was when it was off the curb, it was Addison, when Addison Cresswell was alive, so he knew me. So I did the first season. Uh, Mock the Week, I honest God can't remember uh, how that happened because I know it had been going for quite a while before I was booked on it. Um, and then... Have I got news for you? I used to do a lot of TV warm-up mm-hmm. and I uh, used to do sitcoms uh, a lot, which are a lot of work. But at the time, I was very glad to get them because they were usually Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday nights when I didn't have other work and they were good money. But there's sort of after a while, I felt a little bit like I've done this. I don't want to do it. So the only one I kept doing was Have I Got News For You because they're so nice to me on that show and also you only have to do 10 minutes at the top and then I leave the studio whereas a sitcom Mm. you're there for hours and hours and hours trying to keep people's attention Mm. um so I got on because they knew me from the warm-up um radio show happened because I took the piss out of Caroline Raphael she came to my radio show I didn't uh uh, festival show Edinburgh show Mm -hmm. I didn't know who she was she was sat in the front on her own, she seemed very confident. I was like, "Oh, I don't know. Who you think you are, I, you know?" Because she had that kind of air about her. So I immediately kind of went, and uh, and then halfway through the show, after I'd already had a go, at her, I asked her what she did, and she said, oh, "I'm commissioning editor of comedy at Radio Four. Huge laugh, obviously, from the audience. <laughs> and then she talked to me afterwards and said, "Oh, if you've got any ideas." Oh wow! And then it was Graham Norton's company had put in, you had to put in as a franchise. So, so radio had been developed, but they hadn't made anything. Mm-hmm. So it was one of his producers, Helen Williams. And I said about what had happened with Caroline. And she said, oh, well, we could do that. We could put in an idea and I'll produce it. And so she, we thought of an idea and put it in. Um, and that's how that happened. And then, you know, so that developed from that and then other series with different, production companies and things like that happen Mm -hmm. and then yeah yeah so it's always you can usually see how you get a job and then uh, corporate work started and then that really snowballed and that's a weird world where I've I know I get them from doing them you know because all of a sudden you go that's a lot of accountants seem to know who I am and it's because they recommend to each other and then about a month 
couple of months ago, it was all building trade and architect firms and things like that. And I thought, oh, that's because they tell each other if you've done their, Mm -hmm. you know. And again, I really enjoy those because they buy you time and I find them a good exercise in how can I make this work? Because it's different to a normal gig, but it's still using your comedy brain to go, how do I get to connect with these people? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's your instinct for how far can I go? Yeah. Who are the people to pick on? Who are the people not to pick on? Uh, and when you get it right, it's really satisfying. You know? yeah. I mean, I never get it wrong, but sometimes you get it really right. <laughs> and you know, oh, I just, just picked the right person. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think that today we live in a culture of such uh, sort of instant gratification. Like people mm. just want things now. And it's fascinating hearing you know, you, you see the result, you see mm. Joe Caulfield's on telly, you don't see the process, mm. you don't see everything that went into that. And yeah. so, so kind of unpicking it and seeing how you went from one thing to the next yeah. is, I think, is quite fascinating. Yeah, and I think it's sort of anything where... And then, and then changing tack again, because there was one point where uh, there was interest, and I was very close to a sitcom being commissioned... Um, had a producer in the house at BBC who really liked me with a production company, Positive, who are brilliant. And he, had, the producer had at BBC had, produ- uh, had uh, approached me. So David at Positive was like, this is the things coming together. Because this is what you need. You have to have somebody pushing you. And then we're here with you. Uh, you know what you're doing. Things are aligning. And it was that moment you go, oh, this is going to happen. So it's commissioned, uh, wrote a treatment, you know, and you get paid to write treatment, wrote another treatment. Spent a lot of time, maybe a year and a half in this process. And then the producer at the BBC gets moved. He now doesn't do co-productions. He mm-hmm. only does in-house. He says, I'm passing it on. I'm chasing my agent going, what's happened? It's on so-and-so's desk. Whose desk is it on? Mm-hmm. She told me the name of the guy who'd taken over. I knew immediately. I said, dead in the water. I know the kind of producer he is. I know what stuff he likes. What, it's what I call university boys comedy. He's going to have no interest in me at all. And he didn't. <laughs> and then we sort of tried it somewhere else and were told we're not really looking for female-led projects, really? which, you know, I thought... It's your job. I know it's difficult. You say no to loads of things. But I think the reason you're paid a lot of money is to think of a better reason than that. That's all your job is, is thinking of reasons to say no, you know. So I don't think you can actually legally say you're not looking for female-led projects. But what that kind of taught me was, um, I mean, I've been on that process a couple of times. But this was a time when things were about to align. Everything, oh, it's all coming together. And then when it didn't, it hurt me. Um, that I had devoted so much time to it and then it's nothing. Mm-hmm. But uh, producers, they all go back to their jobs and I'm going, do you know what? I'm a year and a half worse at stand-up because I've not concentrated on it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I don't know if I can go down this process. I don't want, I remember saying, I don't want another fucking meeting. I'm so tired of having meetings where they go, oh, really interested in you. Come in, let's have some ideas. Oh, I've had a million fucking ideas, meetings about them. And unless they really want you 
There's no point. There's absolutely no point. Hmm. And I felt like you're wasting my time. And uh, I thought, right, I'm just going to concentrate on stand-up. I'm going to go back to that, work on a really good Edinburgh show that I'll enjoy because I think I've let my stand-up slip a bit. And then I fell all in love with stand-up again. And that thing of going, oh, because I'm better at it and I've devoted more time to it, I'm now getting loads more work. The corporate starts to do really well. Hmm. The festival audiences really built, did little tours. And uh, it was when I realized, oh, I can be actually quite self-contained because it's a business that can, it can hurt you. And Mm -hmm. it can sort of um, knock your confidence, but also put you off in directions where you go, I can be meeting going, you're a fucking idiot. Like, I've been doing this 20 years. I really do know about comedy. And you don't. So I'm not, I'm not really interested in your opinion. Um, this isn't everybody, but quite mm. a lot. And I thought, why am I wasting my time with you? Because I can make my own living. I'm f- absolutely free to make my own living doing this. So why would I put myself in this position where I've got my own little perfectly successful business mm-hmm. doing what I want to do? You know. And then I started to feel very lucky that I'd done that rather than... Uh, maybe going even further down the line of the sitcom and it not happening Mm -hmm. and then being that much further away from stand-up and and sort of out in the cold going, oh, God, well, now what will I do? I I don't like to be beholden to people. (laughs) I've always had that as a thing, like, I don't want to wait for somebody to, oh, maybe they'll offer me something, you know. No, I'll do it myself. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, do, do you feel as though that stuff potentially happened for a reason? in order to realign you with what it, was your... You know, I mean, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, there's all sorts of weird things that you can say could yeah. have happened for reasons or didn't happen for reasons. They're just things that happened. But I think I'm glad I reacted that way down the line. Now I'm going, oh, I'm really glad that I thought... No. And you know what? It might not have been my idea. <laughs> I think I heard Bill Burr say it mm-hmm. in an interview that he at the time had had... I think a similar kind of thing where people are all going, well, we're interested, but you're a bit this or you're a bit that. And he just thought, oh, well, then you don't want me. If you want me to be a bit this or a bit that, you don't want me. And he said, I'm just going to concentrate on stand-up. And I think actually, okay. now I think about it, I thought, oh, yeah. And I think I kind of, that must have seeped into my head. And I went, yeah, that's the thing to do, isn't it? Of course it is. Because what, a, I mean, I do really love stand-up. I love doing it. and I, And I think it's a... It's a lovely thing to be able to do and make people laugh. And I still, and I do, and I still do think as a woman that I know if I do a good job, I make women in the audience feel better. <laughs> I really do feel that, you know, and, and make, make men have a slightly different attitude when they go out. And I think uh, it's, you know, it's simple, but it's, it's worth doing. Absolutely. You know? That's really interesting. I'd like to speak to you a bit about the Edinburgh Festival. Mm. Um, you were a Spirit of the Fringe 2017 winner mm. with uh, your show Older, Wiser, Smarter, Meaner. Mm. Uh, and this year you're doing your new show Killing Time. Mm. So it would be really interesting to hear a bit about the new show, um, how the two potentially interlink. And uh, yeah. 
they interlink because it's always uh, me just talking about stuff. Um, that's why I always pick a title that is vague, like older, wiser, smarter, meaner, um, because I thought at that time a lot of my stand-up was quite, uh, getting quite mean and very like, I'm not putting up with that shit. Um, so I thought, well, whatever stand-up I've come up with, that will fit into that title. And Killing Time, I quite like because I'd thought of the song, because I thought of Echo and the Bunny Men, The Killing Moon, and it's that Killing Time. I thought, oh, I could come on to that. That's quite nice. And I like, and I like Killing Time just sounds sort of, sounds slightly rock and rolly. I quite like that. And then that feels mm. like it'll go with when I'm thinking of the title, because I don't know what I'm going to talk about. Um, mm. But I generally will talk about similar subjects, um, which is general life life you know what's what things I've done so this year it was talking about going to uh New York um and just a couple of things that happened there that I I I tend to do based on truth with punchlines okay um and some of it some of it I'll work at and go right what's the punchline some of it comes out of your mouth fully formed. It's such a weird process. You know, if I knew the process, I would do it all the time. Um, <laughs> and then I do do pre... And I just... It's jumping off a cliff. And that's why uh, often my shows come together very late because it takes... You have a lot of excuses of going, oh, I just couldn't do that tonight. You've got a new bit and you want to do it and you just, oh, I just couldn't tonight. And then I'm going, well, you've got a month. You've yeah. got to do it tonight. And so I get on a piece of paper and go, right, jump off the cliff, see what happens. Really? And then when they laugh, you're then like, oh, you're floating back up again. And then you add other bits to it. Um, or sometimes you go, oh, right, really, nobody is relating to this at all. This is really literally just me. Um, <laughs> so uh, the other thing, killing time that I, now I don't know if this makes me a bit weird, but I was writing bits of it today um, and I couldn't stop laughing. I was writing it and laughing and going, you're a bit narcissistic. You can't find your own stuff that funny. Um, but it was to do with a friend of mine who got divorced and doing the house clearance. And she finds, and it must have been their years, some porn DVDs of her ex-husband's. Oh and uh, so we started talking about porn. And then it made me think in stand-up terms of what porn is and why do men uh always want two women and then saying to my husband because what would it be like if I, if I brought a friend over it would just be basically me criticizing you having sex with her <laughs> and telling her because I'd be on her side going you know oh I know what he's going to do now see what you think about it because I don't like it at all you know just thinking why in porn films is it always like the women are loving it because you know that's not what it'd be they would they would gang up on the bloke um, and then doing the scenarios where it's like where women are perfectly fine. And this is the one thing that really made me laugh was uh, uh, one of the films was uh, a businesswoman and the, they're at a hotel bar and the guy goes, oh, you, I'm a bit tired. You're a bit tired. Why don't we have the drink in my room? And she goes, oh, yes, you know, because she hasn't heard about Me Too or anything. And um, and there's a naked man in there. And, uh, and he said, oh, you're a bit tense. And it made me laugh because I go, oh, yeah, I'm a bit tense because it's a naked man lying there. And the, the whole, and I just couldn't stop laughing at it. So I was just thinking, this must be funny. If I'm laughing a lot on my own homemade porn film, 
Um, so that's kind of always have sort of devices in a show where that I'll, I'll read it. I'll write it, but I'll read it out. And I've had other things like that in the show. And again, based on truth, where I left an, an, my joke notebook in a hotel in Amsterdam. And you know, most comics notebooks are just lists of words that remind them of a joke. Yeah. So, and, and it was things like uh, uh, kill husband, uh, hate friend, sister's a bitch, uh, knob drawing, you know, uh, shit in a phone box. These are all jokes <laughs> that I've got, you know, and, and that written on the thing. And, and I thought, oh, how funny that the guy is going to find, I had to phone the hotel to, I needed oh the book. God. Because I'm, it's got bits from my Edinburgh show. Yeah. Um, and he, and for him to find it and read it, and I knew the guy had read it because on the phone he said, "Yes, I found it. Your collection of poetry." And I thought, "Oh, he's looked at it." And because I had, there was one thing about a tattoo. Mm. Oh, wanting a tattoo, and the joke is. Oh, I picked out, uh, I'd like to get a tattoo as a reminding of a friend of mine who died in a tragic motorbike accident. So all I need now, I picked out a tattooist and I found the tattoo I want. So all I need now is a friend of mine to die in a tragic motorbike accident. So that was one of the ones that I thought he'll think, is that what he thinks? Because he said, you're dark poetry. And that made me laugh. So I just expanded on that and then read the list to the audience, which also then enabled me to do some of those jokes. So it was actually a way of just putting in some standalone jokes, you know. So I always look for sort of devices um, because you can't just talk for an hour. But you have to have ups and downs and would do something else and, you know, yeah. uh, and sort of putting that together. But it is always a pressure because I think your brain is better under pressure as well. Mine is better under pressure. Yeah, adrenaline. it's interesting because there was an interview that you did. Um, it was a written one that I mm. read quite recently. There's something about people staring at you that makes your brain edit. The words yeah. come out so much better than if I was sitting trying to write it. Oh, That's completely. Really, yeah, because yeah. you're not aware of it. I think all the sitting trying to write is, the, is a good exercise for your brain so that when people are staring at you, your brain can go... <laughs> you know, and that's why I'll record myself because that they'll be the right words, yeah. and they'll be the grammar will be incorrect and the tense will be all wrong. But but that's the way people talk, and that's the way I talk. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I'm writing, it's often rather Dickensian. Well, <laughs> of a morning I went for a stroll. You know, and I, was yeah. talking, and I don't know why am I? It's too formal. You know, mm-hmm. so it is. It is a weird process, and I, but I think any creative process is like that where, I mean, people talk about it in grand style, you know, for pro- proper artists where they go, it's a state of bliss where you don't, you know, people write songs like that. And they'll say, I don't know where it came from. Honest to God, sat at the piano and it was came fully formed. And stand-up can be like that as well. Or you can have an idea and go, I know it's there, but I don't know what it is. Uh and then sometimes it'd be talking with someone else. Like I was saying to my husband, I was going, we argued over it. This punchline, I was going, well, my friend who thinks that she's sexy and that she gets stuff for being sexy, and we needed a table in this restaurant that was full. And I said, so I want her to go up and then come back and be all cocky about it and going, well, we've got a table. Um, they're seating us in two hours. And he went, well, I don't know if it's long enough. And I went, no, I think two hours is funny. He goes, it's not funny. And I went, well, what is it? They've said, you won't have a table for three hours. And I said, what if she says, oh, we've got a table. 
two and a half hours. And he goes, no, it's got to be the other way. It's got to be longer. So I was going, what? And I said, what about, oh, we've got a table two weeks next Tuesday. <laughs> oh, that, that, you know, you don't know why, but you go, that's it. That's it. I was looking for a vegetable today. I'd been doing it with a courgette. And I said, I went, oh, cucumber. It's a classic. <laughs> of course. Don't try and be all hipster with a courgette. Cucumber, funnier. Yeah. Oh, excellent. What do you think makes a great comedian? Wow. There's all sorts of, because I like all sorts of different comedians. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think it's, I think it's good for men, and they won't know it, to have a bit of campery in them, a bit of femaleness in them. Uh, I think Michael McIntyre's got a lot of campery in him. Mm-hmm. Billy Connolly, hugely camp. <laughs> uh, even Jack D, people think he's deadpan, but he's not. He does quite a lot of acting out. He does voices. Um, he does sort of spoilt fed upness about things. Yeah. Um, uh, and there's a weird unknown quantity about people as well. Uh, uh, humanity, if that doesn't sound too wanky, that some people <laughs> you just go, oh, I just don't like them. I just don't like them. And other people you go, oh, they're so warm. Like I did a benefit with Al Murray. And he was comparing. And when I saw the way he was with an audience, and people, people would have queued up for him to take the piss out of them because it's done with <laughs> such love and good feeling. Um, and that's just, that's just something that's in him, you know. Uh, I like, at the same time, I like, sometimes I like people, like I like Dylan Moran because he disdains his audience. <laughs> you know, that's it seems to me like he would much rather do it if they weren't there. And that makes me laugh as well, mm. that he's like that. And I think he's very smart as well um, and like that. So, yeah, there's sort of different people. But I think you, you have to sort of respect it, work at it. Um, Lee Mack, he's another, some, very naturally funny, mm-hmm. almost can't help it. Like meeting him for lunch and he made me laugh as soon as he walked in the door. He sort of way he had his hat on, he's just funny and angry about stuff. As soon as he came in, he was angry, but in a really funny way. <laughs> and I think he almost can't help it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he works really, really hard. Yeah, Sarah Millican works really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there's working hard, there's knowing jokes, there's sometimes knowing what makes you funny and try to do things that make you don't, not to do what everybody else is doing. Mm-hmm. You know, if you find, oh, everybody's got a joke about that now, I try to drop it because mm. also it makes it difficult if you're in a club. You go, oh, the next person to do about chip and pin machines, you know, or whatever it was at the time. So go, oh, everyone's doing it. Don't try to find a new area or mm-hmm. a new attitude to something yeah but yeah all yeah there are all sorts i like all sorts of comedy like i like weird it's like i like all sorts of music but i suppose i like intensity passion oddness sometimes um people who really believe in something is very funny sometimes not in a not in a self-righteous way, um, but who will keep banging on about something that, to the point they make it funny. It's a technique Richard Herring uses a lot. 
and he's very funny at it because he's aware that he's being slightly pompous and going on and on and on about something. Um, because I think actually really believing maybe in something can be very self-righteous, which I think takes away from the comedy. There's a few people who can do it. Mark Thomas can be very funny uh, about things he believes in. But mm, now I think about it. I've never thought about this before. I think it's quite, yeah, it's sort of anti, it's not, doesn't really work with comedy. Mm-hmm. Unless, it, you know, unless it's like what I'm doing, like stupid things about, that you're angry and cross about or passionate about. Because you're not really setting yourself up as being a serious person about this, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be silly things. I'd get annoyed, well, like people being late, like I was. That really <laughs> annoys me. You know, so to bad manners. People being mean for no reason. You know, sometimes people in a shop are just rude to somebody and you just go, why do you, why do you just be rude like that? So that sort of thing I will find interesting and think, oh, I can make something funny out of that. Um, and also, I don't like the rudeness or the unfairness, but I'm not doing it in a, you know, I'm Mother Teresa, I'm using comedy to help the world. Yeah. Definitely not, yes. not in that way. No. <laughs> I said I would um, mm. come back to the, the introduction. Mm. Um, in terms of all of your, you know, awards, accolades, all your achievements, what are you most proud of? Mm. I don't know. I mean, I liked you reading it out. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, gosh, uh, that's, uh, well, oh, I'll have, I'll have a lie down. Done a lot. Um <laughs> I suppose in the end, you're just happy you're still going. You're happy that you're doing it and that you still love it and that you're still thinking of new things and getting better. Okay. Um, I don't think of, because people have a, people have a thing about stand up where they think, they often think it's a means to getting somewhere else or, you know, but I say, but you wouldn't say that to a pianist. You know, this is, what I do and I just want to get better and better and better at it or find different ways to do something. You know, like Paul Weller did lots of different types of music or mm-hmm. now you might go, do you know what, I'm going to do acoustic. And I'm, you know, I might think, oh, I've done a lot of that. Why don't I do this with comedy? So I think that's wonderful to keep being interested and want to do it and carry on doing it. Um, while remaining sane, you know, while not being, while not chasing something and going, oh, but I haven't got that. Yes. Because the more you know about the business, the more you know. But the people I think are here, they're chasing those people up there, you know, and they're going, oh, they've got that, you know, and you go, oh, that way lies madness, you know. So, in a way, keep quite tunnel vision. Yes. <laughs> you know, do do the thing you're doing. And I think that's all you can do. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and I, I, God bless corporates. So I earn a lovely living and, and you know, I'm not, I don't want for anything. So I'm very lucky in that yeah. way. Yeah. It's, but it's, it's, it's interesting when you ask somebody a question like that because it's very rare that you actually kind of hit the pause button in your life and just mm. take time to reflect on the things that you've actually done because you're yeah. always just in it, 
you're constantly just doing stuff and doing yes, stuff. Yes, yeah. Um, but, I mean, you know, with reference to that, how do you feel that you've evolved as a person throughout your life? Oh, God. <laughs> Angrier? I, yeah, I don't know if I could say. Um, I don't know if I could say how I've evolved. I think I'm, like most people, as you get older, you get more confident in yourself. Mm-hmm. You know more what you like, who you like, um, less time for stuff. But at the same time, more kinder, maybe, I think. I'm sort of weirdly more tolerant of people because I think, I well, I remember when I was like that, so I understand what they're, you know, why they're behaving like an arsehole. Um, (laughs) I, tr- I do try to be principled um, and there are things that I don't feel as a comic I could do, um, anything that's, t- you know, anything that's too, too, it's a weird feeling. And it, what it came up with, it came up recently, the, the comic Davy Johns, who then got loads of acting work, who's a very good actor now, in I, Daniel Blake. He put up a thing when it was Britain's Got Talent about seeing comedians on Britain's Got Talent. And I knew exactly what he meant. And he said, oh, I hate to see Noel James, a comedian here at Myers, I hate to see him in front of a panel. And I knew exactly what he meant because that it put me in front of a panel and I want to go, who the fuck are you to judge me? That's how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's everything that comedy shouldn't be because comedy to me is about kicking over the table in front of the panel and going, you fucking, you know, make me laugh. <laughs> so, but people were all like, oh no, but it's great exposure. And a good friend of mine, Mandy Mooden, did it. And I thought, no, that's fine because they obviously don't feel that's absolutely fine. And I'm not judging other people, but mm-hmm. I would go, oh no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and stand up is so much more complicated to perform than yeah. that as well, I feel, you know. So I just thought, oh no, but I know what he meant. Um, <laughs> this is another thing. This is a, a good example of it. Um, band from the late 70s, New York Dolls. Before my time, I had. But I liked what they were about very much. And I sort of came to them later um, because they were sort of pre-punk. Punk took a lot from them. And they dressed outrageously and or mostly became heroin addicts. Um, but they were a very influential band. And one of them, uh, David Johansson, also does quite a lot of acting. I think he was in, was he in Scrooge or not Scrooge, the Grinch or people will be shouting. Um, and then, but his attitude, it was just an interview with him. He lives on Coney Island, not Coney Island, uh, Staten Island. And he was saying about um, somebody calling him for an interview uh, said, or audition. You know, they wanted me for this part. And he goes, uh, and I went in and they go, oh, David, really nice to meet you. Uh, do you want to, do you want to read this script so we, you know, we can see if you can act? And I just went, you fucking act. <laughs> and I just thought that's so brilliant. And his attitude was, you know who I am. You know what kind of person I am, what kind yeah. of part I could play. So just give me the part or don't waste my time. So, and I just thought I, there's something in me that's, 
like that. And uh, and weirdly, I think that's only got stronger yeah. <laughs> as I've got older. I don't know if it was all the frustration of, you know, nuns, of being so controlled yeah. by nuns in a boarding school where you were there 24 hours and... And, oh, I thought the things I would do and I would leave and I'd come back and smack them in the mouth and that sort of pent-up rage. And then, of course, when I left, I actually then never went back and never particularly felt any pent-up rage to them at all. Uh, so I don't know where that is, but uh, I, I think it's a good thing. Somebody's got to be like that, you know, <laughs> to just, you know, kick things up a bit and not, you know, tug your forelock to people all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I thought, or I kind of wondered, mm. um, based on the fact that you are quite, uh, you know, you're headstrong, forthright, your, your style, whether that was in, in a sense, kind of rebelling against the, um, the sort of strictness of the sort of regimented. Well, I suppose it, you went in that way, if you think of it like, yeah, I mean, it couldn't have been more regimented that I was in a regiment. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so I'm in the RAF and I'm going to a boarding school that is run very strictly by nuns. Yes. So that's all very strict, isn't mm. it? Um, although my my dad was strangely, uh, he was sort of quite theatrical. He would have liked to have been a, a, an opera singer, um, but you had to do something sensible. So. He went. He was a teacher, and then he was in the air force. So there was an element of him that was a, a bit wayward and wasn't really very good at taking orders. Okay. <laughs> um, so he was probably very bad in the air force. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. And my sister was very. She could be very like that as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now I think about it, my brother. See, that's very weird because my brother is a Catholic priest. So that's completely the other way. But again, he'll be very argumentative about, you know, what's going on in the Catholic Church. And, you know, yeah, we're all a bit like that. <laughs> Trouble. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe, it's, maybe it's genetic. Yeah, could just be, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've got a few um, kind of larger philosophical mm. questions for you, Joe. Um, the first one is, I suppose, about purpose, um, you know, in, in for yourself. Mm. What do you kind of feel has maybe been your sort of purpose in life? Oh, my God. <laughs> Um, I feel, uh, I feel, and I'm so wary of sounding pompous, Okay. but I feel I'm lucky to have found a thing I really enjoy doing mm -hmm. and that by working hard at it, I've got quite good at it and I think that's what I should be doing. And it's not, um curing diseases it's also not selfless like being a nurse um because i always think if you really want to help people don't do stand-up maybe train as a nurse or a carer <laughs> do that you know so it is kind of disingenuous to go well i really think i'm helping but i think i'm helping a bit yeah for um, sure. as much as i can while still enjoying my life and not having to wipe people's bottoms yeah <laughs> Oh, excellent. That's so good. <laughs> but you're definitely, you're improving the quality of the lives of others. I am. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, a good way Without to Without having it. to get up early in the morning. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you think you would like your legacy to be? How would you like to be remembered? Oh, God, a legacy. That's a weird, I don't. I don't know. And I was saying the other day that... Um, 
I'm quite a friendly person, but of who? But if, but I don't like everybody, <laughs> because I think if you like everybody, it doesn't mean anything. Um, so if I like people, I really like them. And I was thinking the other day, I thought, oh, do I like enough people to have a good crowd at my funeral? <laughs> I don't know. Which is a terrible thing to say. My sister passed away, and she had a fantastic funeral. Um, and. It wasn't necessarily just that that made me think of it, but I did think, well, she was quite, could be quite cantankerous, but I thought, oh, but people saw through that. And it was a really good funeral, and I realised how important good funerals are mm. for us, not for the person. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I thought, oh, God, I hope, hope there'll be a good crowd because that would help my husband. I hope I haven't been too mean. <laughs> uh, I like enough people, yeah. So legacy, God knows, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I know what a legacy is. What is it? What people say about you, or what you leave behind? You know, yeah. I leave nothing concrete behind. Uh, oh, I leave words in the ether, don't I? That's yeah. what I leave behind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's 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 an interesting question for mm. sure, mm. and different people interpret it in different ways. Of course, yeah. um, some people will say, you know, it's not for me to decide what my legacy will be, which I suppose is fine. It's maybe a bit of a cop out. Yeah. Um, you know, I think to a large extent, if you if you know how you want to be remembered, yes. that's a way of uh, uh, a sort of manifesto for living your life. Yes. So in that way, yes, I have thought about it, and I want there to be enough people at my funeral for it not to look embarrassing. <laughs> Um, and it would be nice if people said funny things about me. I would like that. Um, uh, yeah, if people had nice things to say about you, genuinely, rather than just yes. what they say at everybody's funeral. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I suppose if people were, were sorry, I'm getting quite selfish, dramatic now. I'd like, I like, like crying. <laughs> I'd like people to be sorry. <laughs> um uh, yeah, legacy sounds like work to me, though, doesn't it? Maybe that says more about me, that you should leave work behind you, you know, that people can go, well, look at her oeuvres, which they couldn't really do. Yeah. Well, the, 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 the TV shows that you've appeared on will, will live yeah, on. Yeah, and a few people go, Dave. oh, you know, I mean, other people go, oh, I, we went to see her. Do you remember we enjoyed yeah. her show while she's dead? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a bit morbid. We'll, we'll move on. Um, you spoke earlier about, you know, people um, in the comedy scene, you know, they're always aspiring to kind of mm. be the, the person above them or, or, you know, that sort of thing. How do you personally define success? I suppose what I've said really is that I feel I'm uh, it's successful to earn your living and a nice living doing what you want to do, doing something you create yourself. Mm -hmm. and have made your own little business and can, you know, go around flogging your comedy wares <laughs> is successful. Other people would view it differently because they, you know, want to judge things on a thing. You know, and it's not that I'm not competitive, um, but I sort of try to be competitive only with myself. Mm -hmm. Um And I'm not, oh, am I competitive? I was thinking about in sports where I go, oh, I don't give a shit who wins. You know, I, when I'm watching sport, but if I'm playing, yeah. don't care. Really? Yeah, really, you know, whereas other people like, or a board game, they will really want to win. Mm -hmm. Don't care. <laughs> but if I'm on a con comedy bill, I go, oh, I would like people to think I was funny-ish. -ish. You know, 
it'd be slightly competitive in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, if you're, t- you know, what could be better than to do the thing you like doing and also that you think you've worked on and seen yourself get better at and that you could continue doing? That's the other thing I don't, you know, this is it forever because uh, older you get, you know, you would still have things to say. Yeah. So if you can keep doing that, success. Good answer. I like that. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, now, I don't know. Um, Have I been given good advice? I think you get lots of bits and bobs of good Mm. advice. Um. Graham Norton, weirdly, said something that stuck with me. This is a long time ago, but he was on television and he'd had several series on Channel 4 then. And there was a comic who'd won the Perrier and was at some function. And Graham said to me, I was really surprised because they said, oh, God, thank God we don't have to do the circuit anymore. And Graham said, I just felt, oh, I don't even feel like that yet. And I've had three series on Channel 4. Hmm. Baby, don't be so quick to jump out of the thing that gave you this award, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think it's that is just valuing what you have. And if you don't like the thing, well, don't do it and do something else, I think, is useful advice. Um, and find other things you enjoy in comedy. Uh, I mean, outside of comedy as well. Uh, Has anybody given me good advice? Not what I needed it. If someone had told me, oh, it's 1982, buy a house in London, you idiot. (laughs) You know, that would have been good advice (laughs) rather than wait until you're like 38 and going, oh, God, what will I do? Um, all sorts of things people could have given me, but they didn't give me any advice on that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think this, uh, I, I've sort of, I suppose I've seen people how living their life and going, well, I like people who sort of, I do like people who plough their own furrow. I do like people who, where work is important and they work at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be in all sorts of, walks of life I suppose I usually think of it as people in music um, but writers it's the same they you keep writing and don't and, you, and don't compromise too much um, but also at the same time oh, there's always a voice in my head and I don't know where that comes from uh, don't take yourself too seriously. Somebody no. did say that, didn't they? Somebody very clever said, <laughs> don't take yourself too seriously, but at the same time, take yourself very seriously. And I completely get what they're saying because comedy to me is very serious, mm-hmm. but you mustn't say that and you mustn't act like it's serious because that spoils comedy or taking yourself too seriously is so tiresome, mm-hmm. you know. Any people that do sort of witty aphorisms about, is that the word? About not being tiresome. I'm all for people who aren't tiresome. I mm-hmm. like people who make an effort. 
I like friends who maybe, you know, maybe, you know, a bit fucked up and mad and everything. But I go, but they're, they really make an effort. Like, they're always funny. Mm-hmm. You know, like they make an effort. You know, whereas some people, you go, Jesus, do I have to bring all the conversation? <laughs> um, just make an effort in life. Yeah. yeah. Good advice. Good advice. <laughs> if you had the opportunity to speak to your 20-year-old self, what would you say? Buy that bloody house. <laughs> I thought you would say Buy that, that house. Come on. <laughs> Who knew that that was property was a thing? You know? yeah. um, what else? It's 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 hard. People often ask you that. What you say to your younger self? I think I would. Um, there's things that I think. Oh, I wish I'd learnt to blow dry well earlier, because um, I I avoided that for ages and had very frizzy hair. Um, but really, who you can't, you know? Because you, I think it all go. All the ingredients go into who you are now. So. Yeah. Um, I couldn't think what advice to give. And also because my life is not very conventional, people, I couldn't have given myself any advice, you know. Like my nephews and nieces are very, very grown up, much more so than I am in their, you know, they're only in their 20s, but their, you know, university internships, career paths, Mm -hmm. you know. I'm like, oh, my God. How do they know all that? You know, I would yeah. have said, do that. But then I wouldn't have been this. So, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Very interesting. This is the last question. It's a big mm. question. Oh. <laughs> if you could change anything in the world, what would it be and why? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, well, at the moment. What a question at the moment. I in thought you would enjoy this. <laughs> oh, I mean, the small things, isn't there? Like a woman ate a packet of crisps in my ear on a train the other day. Sat right next to me, kettle crisps, the noisiest. And I, I was, honest to God, in shock. And I am one of those people, if I hear that noisy eating, I go slightly yeah. insane. And she did this weird thing, shaking the bag, putting her hand in, like looking at each crisp as though she was going to pull out something that wasn't a crisp. <laughs> And then she'd look at it and then, and I was like, well, that is a simple law we can pass. You can't eat crisps on trains. Or you can eat them, but you have to be in a four on your own, away from other people. But no, I've had people annoy me two seats down. So no. So ban crisps. Um, I would really like, I would really like something to happen to Trump, but I would like it to be done by American politicians. I would like him to be removed legally from power. Uh, I think that would be fantastic. Mm. And I would like uh, a second referendum on Brexit. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Uh, I said that was the last question. I kind of lied because I've thought of a subsequent question, which um, I think would be quite interesting to ask you, actually. Um, What angers you the most in life? Brexit, <laughs> at the moment, politics. Politics. Uh, and politicians of all persuasions, mm. I find them all so self-important, is that thing again, mm-hmm. see? They're so self-important, so self-aggrandizing. Uh, and if you've been, and I've been around politicians sometimes, they always have people, so they're like mini rock stars, and it's the people that turn them septic so that they start to think they're people and that they can't do things on their own, you know. Yeah. Like Harriet Harman, 
I'm doing support on a tour, Roy Bremner, and he wants to have a politician to chat. So Harriet Harman comes on. Roy Bremner is one of the loveliest people in the world. He's about to do his show. Um, so he comes in just nicely to say to her, um, oh, can, um, can I get you anything? Do you need anything? And she goes, oh, I'd really like a gin and tonic. Can you get me a gin and tonic? And I thought, it's Rory's show. Yeah. Don't ask Rory. <laughs> and he went, oh, oh okay, no, I'll, I'll get that. And I went, no, I'll get it. And just like, and I made her. And I went, so you really want a gin and tonic? Okay. Well, it'll be quite difficult. I'll have to go, you know. And I was quite ungallant about it because I just thought, what is wrong with you people? Yeah. So I find that they're very out of touch. Also, it's the salary thing as well. They don't understand. They are in the old world where people had good salaries, good pensions, Mm -hmm. security. Most people don't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. So they don't understand how most people are living. So they they drive me insane and they're so cow- cowardly and they're all just trying to stay in politics. And it's only when you're in politics for a little bit, not in it, but like I'd been to the House of Com- uh, Downing Street for a thing and you realise how small a world it is. It's very like a little public school and they're all sort of bullying each other and jostling for position and it's just, it's not a good system to yeah. come up with ideas. I think that's it really annoys me. You know, there's so few good ideas coming now because it's all very short term. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't even remember the question, but I got so angry. Was that the question? <laughs> yeah, they make me really angry. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> cancer makes yeah. me really angry. Such an awful disease, what it did to my system. Mate. So, so uh, the cancer ads, I mm-hmm. fucking swear at all the time. You know, we're smashing cancer. We're not. People mm. are dying horribly every day. You Maybe we are, I think people are discovering it earlier, mm-hmm. um, but we are nowhere near smashing cancer. And it's sort of, it's sort of patronising and it sort of makes people who have cancer and aren't smashing it yeah. feel terrible, you know. And a guy who I know of very bad, and he said he feels bad because his kids watch it and go, Daddy, are you smashing cancer? And he's Oof. knowing. He goes, well, I'm actually not. But now I feel, equal, you know, even worse for you. Um, that the, you know, not mm-hmm. only is your dad, he goes, not only is he a wrong one because he's got cancer, he's a wrong one because he's not even good at fighting it, you know, Jeez. and that's terrible. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Oof. Mm. So quite a lot. Yeah, a couple of good ones there. Quite a lot makes me angry. Yeah. Well, the politician one, uh, I can't, uh, I struggle to disagree with that. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the quotes and I can't really remember who said it. It might have been Thomas Sowell or a sort of economist, but they were essentially referring Mm. to politicians as public servants. Yeah. And I think we've completely moved from a place whereby they're public servants and they're now basically celebrities, you know, sort of admired and always talked about in the media. Yes. They forget that that's... That's the place. That's their function. That's what they're there to do. Absolutely. And and it is that, that you're meant to be a public servant. So that's why the thing, like when Ed Balls, you know, loses his seat, the first thing, oh, he wants to go on Strictly. Not like do some sort of community work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, go on Strictly. What the fuck has that to do with politics? Yeah. Oh, and then you go, oh, you just all want attention, mm-hmm. says she, I know. But <laughs> I'm not a public servant. You know, and that's when you go, oh, God, it is. They all, you yeah. Know, Want attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bring back public servant. Mm-hmm. So, sort of decency has gone. That, that's, yeah. that feeling of duty has gone, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Mm. <laughs> Joe, it's been brilliant speaking with you. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed I've this. I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. <laughs> I'm glad. Yes. <laughs> it give you an opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, oh, air a few vented. things. Vented, yes. So, uh, yeah. But also yeah. finding out about your story and how you've gone on to achieve all this stuff. It's, it's brilliant. It's oh, fascinating. Thank and, you. Yeah, wow. Power to you, so... More power yeah. to me, yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today, Joe. It's thank been a pleasure. You. Thank you. Cheers. You've been listening to Inspired Edinburgh. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe for more powerful conversations. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show, and we'll see you at the next episode.